Welcome to Research Radio, Episode 3. Research Radio is a monthly series that brings evidence-informed child welfare research to life through interviews with leading researchers. This month, we speak with Dr. Varda Manfeder from Concordia University in Montreal about the challenges facing youth leaving care and the concept of emerging adulthood. I'm your host, Matthew Hollingshead. So my name is Varda Manfeder, and I'm in Montreal, and uh, I am a professor in the Department of Applied Human Sciences at Concordia University. I'm also a licensed psychologist, so I'm a clinical psychologist by training. Great. Thanks a lot for, uh, for joining us today, Varda. You're welcome. <laughs> All right. I was wondering if you could describe just very briefly the research that you'll be speaking with us about today. The research that I'm going to be talking about today really spans quite a number of years. I would say it started in the mid-90s. So it's more a program of research than any discrete research project per se. I did a series of studies starting in the 90s that were really started out as program evaluation, looking at services that were provided at that time for youth who were aging, leaving care at age of majority in the Anglophone sector in Quebec. And so there were a whole number of studies that were very linked to specific services. I then got involved with a large research team here that was looking more globally at the situation of young people in Quebec who were leaving care to move out on their own. I was the only Anglophone participant in that group. So I was involved with this very, this large, it was a three-year study that was funded by the National Crime Prevention Council of Canada. And then my most recent study, which I did on my own, was a three-year study funded by SHRC, Social Sciences Humanities Research Council of Canada. That was a comparative study where I interviewed young people who were leaving home around or close to age of majority, leaving their families to move out on their own, and also um, compared their accounts of the home-leaving experience and especially their preparation and their anticipation of leaving home before they left to those of young people in the care system. And that study just ended last summer. So, like, you've been studying this for, obviously, a, a, a very long time. Yes. <laughs> I, I imagine you, you need to you know, have some reservoir passion and commitment to uh, to maintain that. Um, can you tell us a bit about why you chose to get involved in this process and where that, that commitment comes from, maybe? Actually, the truth is that, that my academic career is really my second career. And I started working, so brace yourself, I started working as a psychologist in the child welfare sector in Quebec in 1976. Okay, mm -hmm. Because there's only one child welfare agency in Quebec, I worked basically in the, with the same agency for many years, and they were, in fact, in the forefront of developing dedicated services for youth who were transitioning to independence. And this didn't happen till about the early 90s, you know, that they developed specialized services and programs of preparation for youth. Um, leaving care to go live on their own. And so when they decided to develop services for youth leaving care to go to independent living, I became attached to that team. So part of my role was to help them develop 
services. And one of the things that we discovered was that a lot of the things that they were developing, and they had a tremendous energy and passion and dedication, they, but the kids weren't that excited about. So they, their main approach to that at the time, which, by the way, is still the approach in most child welfare agencies that I okay. know, is they were developing specialized, almost like educational kinds of workshops. I call it a sort of a psychoeducational model where they were almost training these kids in life skills because the big anxiety is that kids coming out of the care system really are not very self-sufficient. They lack life skills. They have deficits. So they don't know how to take care of themselves. And so a lot mm-hmm. of the focus of the energy was teaching them how to cook, how to sign a lease, how to find an apartment, how to find a job. And one of the things that we noticed quite quickly is that the kids, some, some kids engaged and did very, very well and learned and whatever, but there was a significant percentage of the kids who either came and were turned off or didn't come at all. So they had a lot of trouble holding on to some kids. And the other thing that was even more surprising to us at the time was that there were some kids who once they knew they were going to live on their own, not going home to family, not going to a foster home. And here we're talking about kids who are mostly 17 years old because in Quebec it's 18 when services in the in the uh, youth sector end so they would be preparing them to leave at 18 some of them not only didn't engage didn't come to these workshops couldn't have cared less didn't want to meet with anybody to plan their exit they actually became more and more difficult to interface with they became more defiant more angry more upset and ended up running away from care And so that was really counterintuitive because here we were trying to help them get ready to go and they just left. They just took off. So um, we were very concerned about this as a team. And so at that point, we started to develop other approaches to working with them because we really felt we were missing the boat. And so I guess your question was, why was I passionate about this? You know, the other thing is it's very clear and it's been very well documented and lots of people have written about it. I mean, it's more true now than it was in the 90s is that these kids leaving care to live on their own are taking on autonomous living at a much earlier age than other kids. I mean, I have now three kids who are in their 20s all of them. Mm-hmm. My oldest daughter, who's 27, just came home again. I mean, so we know, and there's plenty of data. And one of the things I didn't mention before is I'm also I've gotten very interested in normative transitions to adulthood because I think one of the problems in child welfare is that sometimes we get so engaged in thinking about the deficits of the kids we deal with that we forget that we're bringing up kids. We're just bringing them Mm -hmm. up, just like I'm bringing up my own kids. So I've gotten very interested in some of the developmental psychology literature. There's a guy at Clark University, a very wonderful uh, developmental psychologist, Jeffrey Jensen Arnett, who has a wonderful website, a very generous man, and you can go to his website and you can read lots of things. He puts lots of articles there. And he's advocating for a new stage to be added in the human life cycle. He thinks, because traditionally psychologists have defined development as childhood, 
adolescence, adulthood, on and on and on, you know, older, middle age, older adulthood. Now mm-hmm. what Jeff Arnett is saying is there's a stage between adolescence and adulthood, which he calls emerging adulthood, because what he's saying, and he doesn't deal with kids in child welfare, he doesn't deal with marginalized groups at all. He's saying just your normal, average young person They're taking longer than ever to grow up, and there are developmental tasks that are very particular to your 20s that really mean that you're not ready to really be an adult, as it's defined in developmental psychology, till you're almost 30. So here are our kids, and I've been doing this for a long time, and our kids in Quebec at age 18, it's game over, and they have to be out there taking care of themselves. So... I'm very passionate about this also because I I feel very keenly the injustices involved because these kids really, through no fault of their own, are without the resources that kids need to grow up. And we collectively are their parents and we're not doing a very good job. We're abandoning them early and we aren't giving them the tools they need to make it out there. So for me, and also I guess because I was a practitioner, because I worked so closely with staff, because I, I worked with some of the kids, I mean, I, it's heartbreaking, what, you know, the way these kids are living. and they're, So a lot of them are coming through the care system. Now, I want to be careful here, Matt, because there are some kids who come out of care, who go live on their own and do very, very well. But we don't know enough about them either. We don't understand well yet why some kids, despite all this, are doing well. And so one of my interests now is to try to also identify kids who are the resilient graduates of child welfare and try to find out what was different for them. One thing we know for sure is if you talk about homelessness, if you talk about prisons, if you talk about psychiatric hospitals, the kids from child welfare are overrepresented in mm-hmm. every marginalized group of adults you can think of. Right. So and I think um, yeah. I had the privilege of hearing you speak a little while ago and this uh, this idea of emerging adulthood that you were talking about, it was a bit of an aha moment for me when I heard you describe it because I thought back to my own peer group and, and my own uh, journey to adulthood, I guess. And it was not a straightforward process for most of the people that I know about, you know, getting the skills to be independent. Like you say, going back to your home a few times, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. And, and yeah, the idea that kids in care are just kind of being, you know, tossed to the wolves almost to just fend for themselves. It's, it's a bit of a different expectation. No, it's horrendous. And I mean, they've already, I mean, these kids are so disadvantaged in so many ways. They have, Mm -hmm. you know, many of them have very serious deficits and they've experienced incredible losses. So, in my experience, I don't want to overgeneralize, in my experience here, when I worked in the child welfare agencies with the staff, I think that sometimes we pathologize things that are normal developmental crises. And mm-hmm. so now having, you know, struggling with three kids in their 20s, all of whom are doing it in a very different way, you know, they're not all in turmoil by any means, but this transition to being on your own and being autonomous, it's not, it is about economics and it is about being able to support yourself and the media mm-hmm. has done a very good job of letting everybody know that, you know, our kids aren't going to have permanent full-time work right out of school. But it's much more than that. And I think the economics creates a certain feeling of insecurity, a f- certain feeling of 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 hopelessness, I mean, apathy. I mean, I think it's hard to be a person in your 20s now and be really excited about I'm going to get out there. 
You know, when I seems like there's a lot of ambiguity. Yes. A lot, yes. What goals and expectations should be. Yes, and I and I think what ends up happening is that that has a huge impact on on your sense of identity and your sense mm. of um, self-efficacy. You know, and and how much how how powerful you are in the world. I think it has a very far-reaching effect. So I think that we we've got this sort of double-edged problem, which is that we expect kids in child welfare to go out there at 18. But we also expect for it to be smooth, and it's not smooth for anybody anymore. That's just not mm-hmm. reality anymore. So, we've heard about this idea of emerging adulthood. I'm wondering, what have you found about about how this plays out for for the kids in care who are facing some real serious um, challenges and and forms of marginalization? Yeah. I really want us to think about normative processes and put those front and center in terms of our interventions, okay? So the things that I've learned most recently that are really kind of important and very humbling for me as somebody, I mean, that's the other piece of this, talk about passion. I mean, I was one of those people who was working with these kids and blew it, you know? Wasn't able to connect with them in the way they needed to be connected with, you know? Mm -hmm. And I was coaching their staff. So I feel this very strongly. I guess the first thing which I already mentioned is that there's a, to me there's an inevitability around this being a crisis, even more so than it is with a normative population because it's not just about, you know, they're moving on to live on their own. They are leaving care. There was an article that was written a long time ago by an American woman named Gordy Levine and it was called Time to Mourn Again. And what she talked about was how one of the things about leaving care is it re-stimulates how you got there in the first place. It's like when you Mm. break up with a partner, you remember how it started. I mean, that's sort of basic human psychology that when we end things, we relive the beginning. And so part of what leaving care is about, it's about looking at how you got into care which is very, very painful and difficult. And also, at least for now, and at least in Quebec, I can't speak for the rest of the country, kids who leave care to go out on their own do it because they don't have a choice. So not only do they have to revisit why they came into care, but they have to face that they're alone. So leaving care, and I've seen, and I've seen it in myself, you know, we all want to say, yippee, you're graduating from care, isn't that great? And yet they're facing this abyss of no support, very little financial support, if any, in a state where they're very, very upset because, you know, first they ha- they were dragged into care, most of them, perceive it as an involuntary thing, no matter how they yeah. came in, and now they're pulling the rug out from under them, so they're doubly uh, upset and in a state of mourning and in a state of crisis, you know, and the thing about normative development is when a young person leaves home, mostly they're they're excited to leave, but there's a certain level of ambivalence because it's scary to leave home. You know, you're not mm-hmm. sure if you're going to make it on your own. There are things about, for most kids, if you're lucky, there are things about being at home that are comfortable and they're hard to give up. You know, even simple things like somebody helping you with 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 groceries. You know, just simple things that you didn't have to think about before. So. In the normative population, there's the ambivalence, which leads to a certain crisis. In our kids, it's compounded by all these things. So I think the first thing that's really important in terms of a finding is I think that we have to approach this like it's a normative crisis. Because what I've seen happen is that the kids who are having a rough time as they're leaving, 
there's been a tendency in the places where I've worked for there to be a very punitive, very repressive, very, you know, you're acting out now kind of response versus really seeing this as a very tough time where people need space to express their anger. I mean, their anger about being in care and about now having no one to look after them. So I think that's very, very, very important. And part of this also has to do with attending to the emotional process, which I don't think we do. I think, or certainly we haven't done here. I don't want to generalize. So we're very busy talking about how to cook, how to clean, how to take care of yourself. You better find a job and all that stuff. But we never talk about how crappy it feels or how it feels. I mean, I wouldn't, let's, let's not put words in anybody's mouth, how it feels to be leaving. We don't help. Do you have any sense of um, what the relationship is like between this emerging adulthood and uh, and trauma, grief, loss, all those times of intense emotional, psychological experiences? Well, I think one of the things that Jeff Arnett and the literature on emerging adulthood talks about a lot mm-hmm. is they talk about the importance of identity issues in emerging adulthood and that it really is it used to be and I don't know if you remember this but it used to be that people talked about identity as something that was majorly worked on in adolescence but I think this whole piece about going out there into the world and having to launch yourself or anticipate launching yourself I think it brings the identity issues to a whole new level around not just who am I but who who do I want to be now what what choices am I going to make about the things I'm going to do and how does that fit for me? And I think that when you, I think, so, and I want to be careful about what I think versus what Jeff Arnett says, I sure. think that trauma and abuse and loss is something that's very, very hard to process in relationship to your identity. And so it makes the whole issue of who am I in the world much harder to deal with because, you know, and this is all sort of, this is all old stuff, psychodynamic theory, attachment theory. And so all that stuff about, am I, you know, if I'm not lovable, I mean, if you're still dealing with am I lovable or not, you're really compromised when you move into issues of identity. So that's one piece. The other thing that Jeff Arnett and the emerging adulthood people talk a lot about is that there's this feeling in emerging adulthood of being in between, not quite an adult, not quite a child, you know. And I sure. think... One thing that I also feel strongly about, and again, it's the psychologist in me that's coming out, is that human beings have this really quirky thing, which is when human beings are deprived of the things that they need to move forward in their development, they they stick around for more. So, for example, we know, and this is an old finding, that when there's been an abusive relationship with parents or kids who've been neglected, they don't just move on to other relationships. They're stuck there because it's very particular to human beings that you kind of wait around for more. That's the other thing. A lot of youth who leave care to go to independent living, the minute the social worker's back is turned, they're back with their parents. Mm -hmm. Even if the child welfare system couldn't sanction a planned move back to the parents, a lot of these kids end up gravitating back to the parents because they go back to the unresolved issues, right? So they're going to go home to try to repair that. So I think there's that other piece, which is if your average kid is feeling in between, not quite a young, not quite a kid, not quite an adult, mm-hmm. then the whole self-concept of somebody who's who suffered from abuse and neglect, it's 
very confusing for them to try to position themselves in terms of how they see right. themselves, right? The second thing that I found in my most recent research, which which mm-hmm. was a revelation for me as a parent, okay, is, yeah, parents are very important in helping kids feel good about about leaving and, and moving out on their own. And particularly important is the idea that they can go back home if they need to. They don't want to. Most of the kids I've spoken to, they don't want to go back home and they don't want to need their parents' help. But it's nice to know it's there. And Jeff Arnett writes about this too. He calls it the safety net. But one of the things that was really a surprise to me, which I think is very applicable to child welfare, is that one of the most important things that parents did for their kids who were leaving home was expressing confidence in their ability to handle themselves. Hmm. Very, very simple thing, and yet very elegant. And what my research has taught me is that what helps young people who are transitioning to independence a lot is feeling that their parents have faith in them. And I don't think we do that well in the child welfare system. I think that we are so, you know, we we talk about strength-based intervention and we talk about uh, resilience and we, we talk about a lot of those kinds of ideas. But I think that especially where it comes to transitioning kids out of care, I think we're we are terrified, just like I as a parent am terrified. And I don't recall that being something that we spoke about a lot when I was actively practicing in the child welfare sector, which is how important it is to express confidence in someone's capacity to handle themselves. Um, now, it could be that we don't have a lot of cause to do that, but I don't think we look for opportunities to express confidence. And I think... I, the young people that I've talked to who've moved out on their own, they had bad times, these kids who came out of families. They had the same kind mm-hmm. of bad times that our kids have. They're tempted by alcohol, by drugs. They take risks that they wouldn't have taken when they were living at home. They abuse yeah. their freedom, you know, all those kinds of things. But somehow inside of themselves, they can hold on to the idea that somebody had confidence that they could handle it and they could come back to that. And that was also very important to them. So I think we need to develop an attitude of confidence and we need to try to express that confidence to our kids. Do you have any advice for practitioners who are listening about how to express that confidence? Well, I think confidence, expressing confidence in someone, and this comes more out of the literature on self-esteem, you know, there Mm -hmm. was a time in history, probably when my kids were little, where it was very much in vogue in terms of parenting, to tell your kids how great they were. Wow, you're great. Mm-hmm. You're terrific. You know, and kids would come home from school with these buttons saying, I'm terrific. But what it turns They could do anything. I could do anything. But it turns out yeah. that telling somebody they're great doesn't mean anything unless there's a context. So saying, I think you can, you're, you can handle yourself is probably not the best way to go about it. It has to be very specific in relation to things that the kid themselves can identify that they are doing, you know, and it can be very simple things like, you you know, I've noticed that when you need something, you pick up the phone and that's, Mm -hmm. that's an amazing skill for somebody who's going to live on their own. Or I've noticed that when you're hungry, you know, I mean, just really (laughs) sounds almost banal, you know, simple things, but I've noticed about you that you are a person who does X, Y, and Z, and you know, living on your own, that's going to be a great skill, and it, it gives me, ma- makes me feel that you're going to be okay. 
And the other thing, by the way, so this I'm sneaking this in, Matt, because I'm already over quota because I have one other thing I want to say. I picked three things, but I'm already over quota. Um, one of the things that was very interesting to me is that when I t- asked the kids who had left home, and I only studied a small group, but one of the things they all told me is that they didn't want to learn how to cook. They didn't know anything about doing laundry. They didn't know anything about taking care of themselves till they left. And they said, what would, I didn't want to learn it then. And what would have been the point? And when I got to my apartment and I figured out, oh my God, I now have to cook a meal for myself and I don't know how to do that, I called a friend. So there were two parts of that that were very powerful for me, that people learn things when it's most relevant for them to learn things. So if you're trying to teach someone at 17 who's upset, who's angry, who's in a state of crisis because they're pissed off that they that they're moving out on their own and that they can't, you right. know, that their social worker is not helping them get home and they don't want to learn how to cook. I want to go back to my last point. I'm not saying expressions of confidence because the kids are learning the skills that are relevant. It's more finding the thing in their repertoire right now that they can build on that are mm-hmm. strengths. It, it's not like, come, I'll teach you how to budget and then I'll tell you how good you are at budgeting. It's really, uh, unfortunately or fortunately, and that, that was the other thing, a lot of kids go out there and they blow their money the first month out or whatever. You know, that's part of life. So right. it's it's more about other things, you know, not teaching them how to cook and then telling them they're good at cooking. So, so I think we we spend a lot of time trying to engage them with things that they're not interested in because they're not there yet. When they get there, you know, what might be more relevant is to make sure that they have resources that they can, you know, give them a cookbook or I don't know, or, or, or then this is my third thing, which was really huge for me, really, really huge. And this is the direction I'm going in now with my new research is it turns out that these kids who had left home, yeah, it was great that their parents supported them. It was great that they knew they could go home if they needed to. It was, But in a pinch, when they were in crisis, when they didn't know what to do, the people they turned to were their friends. And not only that, it turned out that their friends were very powerful. Their peer relationships were very powerful in determining when they left home, how they left home, and where they went to. So the peer group has a very particular role. And of course, I mean, you know, it made perfect sense to me in terms of my life and when I watch my kids. Peer support is a huge piece of what kids who are out there, emerging adults who are out there, what they're drawing on in terms of getting through this transition. And I'm not sure we're very good at that in child welfare. In fact, I would go even further. I would say I think... Now, again, this is a gross generalization, but what I've seen, especially in group care settings, not foster homes, but like group placements, is that we Mm -hmm. don't encourage our kids in in care to be friends with each other because we are so, as adults, we, we so believe in the power of the peer group to contaminate, you know, and and bad friends. Like, you know, so if you live in a group home and some of the other kids have had challenges, you're not sure you want kids to be friends. But it turns out that having peer support is critical, number one. The other thing is that, you know, I have very mixed feelings about this idea about contamination through friendship. I think it's more important 
to feel connected to other kids. And so that's the other thing that we don't do very well. We work with groups of kids in Quebec to help them get ready to transition out of care, but working with them in groups means we put them all in a room and we talk to all of them at the same time. We don't try to develop peer networks. We don't work with cohorts. We don't get the kids to support each other. Just not their relationship. Yeah, nurture their relationships with each other so when they're out there, because Mm -hmm. they're not going to want to call their worker. There are some kids who do, but so that they have some connection. And also, they really can and do identify with each other. And we know, for example, from the little bits of work that have been done in various provinces around creating networks of alumni from care, that for some kids, those are life-saving experiences to be connected to other kids who have graduated from the care system. And we could be planting those seeds, you know, much earlier. So I'm really interested and concerned, and I want to sort of think very hard about the whole question of friendship, because that's the other thing that the developmental psychologists have known forever. It turns out that having age-appropriate friendships is a very powerful prognostic indicator of mental health in adulthood. Mm-hmm. More powerful than a lot of other things. So if you have friends and if you've had, you know, and again, we'd have to talk a long time about what an age-appropriate friendship is, but having friends really predicts mental health, you know. And so we have to help our kids connect with each other and create support systems for themselves um, so that they have somebody to call when they don't know how to cook. And the fact that services are ending doesn't mean that they don't belong anywhere anymore. They still have a a reference group. They still see themselves as part of something, you know. And the thing is, is that if our ultimate aim is to help young people become autonomous, which is, that's the ultimate aim of a good parent, right, is that, you know, you're, you want your kids to grow up and become self-managing and self-regulating and all that. And if that's what we want, you have to give people space. You can't, autonomy can't develop in the context of control, of 100% control. So all, we, have mm-hmm. to, we have to find ways that we can relax the structures and the procedures and the rules and the regulations so that these kids can have some breathing space and some room to experiment and connect with each other. Um, and it, it's, it's, it's no short order. Well, it's very tough because our mandate, right, it's, it's a protection mandate, and that's yeah. really tough. And it involves a lot of self-reflection, and it involves a big shift in terms of values and beliefs and how we understand our role and... You know, we and and so it's not as easy as saying to people, you know, loosen up on the rules. You can't do that. You can't do that unless you really can engage in some very deep shifts around the value base. You know, and part of it, I don't know. I mean, I'm not. I think it's systemic. I think you know, we have to look at the legislative context in Canada and mm-hmm. the mandates of you know, how we define the mandate of child welfare. And, I mean, there, this, these, it leads up to big, big questions, you know, ultimately. Sure. You've been listening to Research Radio, Episode 3, a conversation with Dr. Varda Manfetter. Research Radio is produced by Practice and Research Together, a membership-based organization that promotes the understanding and use of evidence-informed practice at all levels of the child welfare system 
For more information about this episode's topic, Research Radio, or Practice and Research Together, please visit www.parkcanada.org. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at PartEIP. That's P-A-R-T-E-I-P. Thanks for listening.